Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. I feel like I'm teaching to a half of congregation, so I guess I am. So. <laughs> but anyway, we, we shall forge ahead. Um, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, and let's stand for the reading of the word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. Father, we thank you for your word. We just thank you that it tells us what you have done for us. It tells us of your love. It tells us that you have accepted us into your family, into your kingdom. And we are just so grateful, Lord. Words cannot express just how how awesome this, this wonderful grace of yours is. And... Uh, we just want to show our appreciation this morning, Lord, by by listening to what you have to say to us, to taking your word into our hearts, to making it a part of us, Lord, and using it, Lord, to equip us to do the work of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. <clears throat> now, I opened uh, the last time. I was up here, the introduction to Ephesians with a quote, a quote from John Mackay, who was uh, president of the Princeton Theological Seminary in the late 1800s. And he wrote of this epistle, and I'll probably quote this every time that I'm up here during our study of Ephesians, because I just like it so much. That is, that the book of Ephesians is the distilled essence of the Christian religion, the most authoritative and the most consummate compendium of our holy Christian faith. The letter is pure music. What we read here is truth that sings, doctrine set to music. In fact, you know, there's so many accolades heaped upon this short book by esteemed scholars and theologians over the years that I could probably find one for every time I'm up here for our study, even if I did one verse at a time through the whole book. But today we're going to jump into the theology, the, theology of the book and deal with one of the most controversial subjects that Paul covers or that's found in the Bible anywhere. But before we begin, I want to point out a couple of things. One is that in the original Greek, verses 3 through 14, 
are just one long sentence. No punctuations, no capitalizations, just one long run-on sentence. A whole lot like Pastor Bill's text messages, you know, if you've ever gotten one. Uh, sorry, Pastor Bill. I, I couldn't resist that. However, there's, there's no way to break these, uh, this long sentence up into individual sentence that changes the sense of the message or any translation of the message. It, it's going to say the same way, you know, how many ways you break it up into different sentences. And secondly, I want to remind you of the theme of the book. Every book has its theme, you know, and this one, of course, is no different. The theme of the book is God's purpose for the church. If we understand the theme of any book, then we can understand what the writer is talking about uh, so much better. Now, if we look at these 14 verses, you know, we find them filled with, with doctrine, filled with teachings of Paul. But if, if we look at them just as a, a teaching, we will miss the greater meaning if we fail to see them as an outburst of praise. Paul was so moved by what God has done for us that it's almost like he can't control himself. It's just like one big outburst uh, of praise. He, he can't even stop long enough to take a breath. You know, Paul didn't write his own letters. Uh, he couldn't see well enough, evidently. That's what most uh, historians think. But he had a scribe who, who wrote for him. And I can just imagine his scribe trying to keep up with him here and either thinking or saying, you know, slow down, I'm going to miss something, you know. But he's just he's just so carried away with his praise that you know it just all comes out at once. And of course his scribe wrote it down that way. But you know the the verse not only contains praise, but it also contains doctrine, a lot of doctrine. And doctrine isn't a bad word as people have tried to make it out today. It simply means teaching. James Montgomery Boyce, one of my favorite preachers and commentators, uh, properly says, Doctrine, if rightly understood, leads to doxology. And doxology, as we know, is a hymn of, of praise to God. So if we understand what Paul's saying here, we can't help but add our own praise to these words. So in the verses to follow, Paul tells us, what God has done for us by praising Him. He begins by praising God for every spiritual blessing and then continually praises Him as He goes through these blessings. In verse 3 he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You know, notice that there's two uh, blessed that's hard to say too blessed in this verse first you know, blessed be God and then you know God has blessed us now there's a difference in these two words though in the Greek it's a slight difference but just enough to change the meaning the first blessed blessed be God this verb this is a, a 
a verb. And we know a verb is a word that explains or modifies, describes or modifies a noun. In this case, the noun being God, and it tells us that God is worthy of praise. He's worthy to be praised. Now, the second blessed is a verb. And a verb, we know, is an action word or a state of being. In this case, it's an action word. It tells us the action, that something that God has done. In this case, it is past tense. He has blessed us. And he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, what does every mean? Every means every. All of them. You know, the whole the whole works. But now notice here that these are spiritual blessings he's talking about, not material blessings. Uh, some TV evangelists will use this this verse to try to prove that it applies to material blessings as well. They say that Paul really is meaning blessings that were given out by the Holy Spirit, which would include material health, wealth, and prosperity. But Paul reinforces the spiritual nature of these blessings first by saying that they are in heavenly places. And then secondly, he goes into the specific blessings that he has in mind. Now what does Paul mean by by heavenly places? Now the term heaven is used in several ways in the Bible. It can mean anything from where uh, the manifest presence of God is always always evident. You know, God's throne, God's central dwelling place, however, however you want to look at it. It could mean the place where we're going to spend eternity. Heaven can even refer to our atmosphere and the air. But in this case, and we know this by the context, he uses the term heavenly places five different times throughout this book, and it always refers to the spiritual realm, the sphere in which the principalities and powers of the spiritual realm continue to operate and where Christ reigns supreme and his people are seated with him. Well, some people may say that's all fine and good, but I live in the physical world and I need material blessings right at the moment. My car payment's due. My cell phone's going to get turned off. And I really need a vacation in Aruba. Well, you know, if a person is more interested in material blessings than in spiritual blessings, he's carnally minded. And to be carnally minded is to be at enmity with God. David Gutzik writes, If we have no appreciation for spiritual blessings, then we live at the level of animals. Animals live only to eat, sleep, entertain themselves, and to reproduce. We are made in the image of God, and he has something so much higher for us. Yet many choose to live at the level of animals. God wants us to know every spiritual blessing 
in the heavenly places in Christ. You know, it's not that God hasn't promised material blessings for us, which he definitely has, but we don't want to be like pigs under the acorn tree, eating the acorns and never looking up to see where they come from. He has blessed us with far more material blessings than we deserve. Charles Spurgeon said, Our thanks are due to God for all temporal blessings, but they are and they are more than we deserve. But our thanks ought to go to God in thunders and hallelujahs for spiritual blessings. A new heart is better than a new coat. To feed on Christ is better than to have the best earthly food. To be an heir of God is better than being heir to the greatest nobleman. To have God for our portion is blessed, infinitely more blessed than our own broad acres of land. God has blessed us with spiritual blessings. These are the rarest, the richest, the most enduring of all blessings. They are priceless in value. You know, Jesus promised his followers that if we would seek him first, we wouldn't have to worry about the necessities of life. He said, you know, therefore don't worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things, but seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. And our problem is we tend to confuse necessities with wants. Let's seek the spiritual blessings first. And if we do that, the material blessings will be added as God sees fit. And we will be happy with what we get. Now, I want us to note also the, the Trinitarian nature of Paul's writing here. We see all three persons of the Godhead. We see God the Father who blesses us. We are blessed in Christ Jesus and these blessings are administered by the Holy Spirit. First, it is from God the Father that our spiritual blessings come. It is He who has blessed us and we will, and as we will see, it is He who chooses us and who freely lavishes His grace on us and will accomplish all things according to his will. What are these spiritual blessings? The ones that we have in heavenly places? The ones for which Paul is praising God? Paul lists them as, and we will go through these in more detail as we continue our study in the book. First of all, verse 4, election. That we were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Secondly, adoption. We've been adopted into his family with all the rights and privileges as sons and daughters. Thirdly, redemption. To be redeemed or to redeem someone means to pay a price or a ransom. And here he has paid the price that was rightfully ours to pay. Fourth, the forgiveness of sins. He not only forgave our sins, but he did away with them as far as east is from the west. Fifth, he revealed to us his purpose in history. He let us know what he is up to 
in establishing his church. Sixth, that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You know, when something is sealed, it's safe and secure. That's how we are in Christ. You know, Paul tells us in chapter 2 that we are seated with him in heavenly places. And seventhly, we have an inheritance. An inheritance much better than a rich uncle leaving us, leaving us his vast estate. An inheritance that won't fade away. You know, not only is Paul diligent to praise God for all these <laughs> blessings, he points out that every one of these blessings is in Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it well. He says, if you leave out in Christ, you will never have any blessings at all. Every blessing we enjoy as Christian people comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the central focus of our spiritual walk, our earthly walk of everything that we do, everything that we have, and everything that we will have. Let's look at verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. As we start to look at what uh, God has done for us, what he has done for his people, it's little wonder that Paul was overcome with praise. To think that even before God began to create, that he chose us to be his people, a people that are called by his name. And why did he do that? Because he loved us. Why? That's simple. He loved us. Why did he love us? That's not so simple. We don't know why on earth he would love us. All we know is that he loved us. That's all the Bible tells us. And that should be enough. Now whether we were elect or chosen, it's the same word, in love, or whether we were predestined in love, all depends on the translation that you're you're using. The uh, King James or the New King James ends this first sentence at the end of chapter um, at the end of verse six. Now the NIV, the uh, English Standard or the Revised Standard Version, ends it with in love uh, or ends it with uh, at the end of uh, without blame before him period and then in love having predestined us and that begins a new sentence it really doesn't make any difference I'm only saying that because if you're if you're reading and following along and say an NIV or the RS uh, the revised standard uh, it's you know you're going to think well you know it doesn't read like that but it all means the same thing it doesn't matter which way it's broken up I, I actually prefer ending the sentence with uh, uh, without blame before him period and then in love predestining us but either way the point is that he loved us and personally I think that we were chosen in love and then we were predestined in love now a lot of people get really hung up on this doctrine of election and predestination 
we hear so much about it today, about the free will of man versus the sovereignty of God, or Calvinism versus Arminianism. Did I choose to follow God, or did God choose for me? Did he choose me to be saved? And even worse, did he choose some not to be saved, that they would be hopelessly lost with no hope of salvation? Now, yeah, unfortunately this morning I don't have time to go deeply into this controversy. So we're only going to talk about election and predestination as it pertains to our text today. Now, I have no problem standing before you and defending the doctrine of predestination because it's taught in the Bible. I have no problem standing before you and defending the doctrine of the free will of man because it's taught in the Bible. Both of them are biblical doctrines. And it's really on that point that Calvinists and Arminians agree. Now, you may be thinking to yourself or asking yourself, what's the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism? Calvinism is the doctrine which was not... um, thought up by, by John Calvin. It was just his name was applied to it. The doctrine that God sovereignly elects those to be saved, not on the basis of anything that we did or might do, whether we're good or bad or whether we would accept him or not, but just flat out with, with no apparent reason chooses who he wants to be saved. Armenianism, on the other hand, was the doctrine that uh, the Dutch theologian uh, Arminius uh, came up with. No, he didn't come up with it. He just added his name to it, just like Calvin. Uh, That says, yes, God did predestine, but he predestined on the basis of the foreknowledge of whether or not people would accept him. If he knew beforehand that that you would accept the gospel, then you were predestined to become his son or daughter. If he knew beforehand that you wouldn't accept it, then you were predestined for damnation. That's that's kind of it simply, way too simply. But that's really all we have time to get into this morning. Uh, both both Calvinists and Armenians agree that predestination is taught in the Bible. Both Armenians and Calvinists agree that the free will of man is taught in the Bible. It's just how predestination is administered is where the disagreement comes on. But you may say, you know, I thought I decided to follow Jesus. Yes, you did. God gave you that choice. It was totally up to you. He put the choice right exactly in your lap. But on the other hand, you would never have been able to decide if God hadn't decided first to call you. Jesus says, no one can come to the Father. Or, uh, Sorry. No one can come to me unless the Father first draw him. So then, how do we reconcile these two things? 
How do we reconcile the free will of man and the sovereignty of God? Well, actually, we don't. We don't because we can't. The greatest theological minds, the most spiritual of our Christian theologians throughout the last two centuries have wrestled with this and have not been able to come even close to reconciling the two. And so I'm sure that we're not going to either this morning. And I think that's the way God wants it. Probably because he knows that our minds, even the sharpest of our minds, is not going to be able to comprehend just how this works. And so he just wants us to trust him on it. And that I am certainly willing to do. Besides, you know, if we could figure out all the mysteries of God, we'd be as smart as he is. And I certainly don't want to serve a God who's no smarter than I am. Now, what bothers me, though, is when proponents on either side, you know, the sovereignty of God or the free will of man, you know, try to say that their way is the only way that is right. It's almost as bad as those who try to meld the two together, just into one conglomeration. It's something that uh, Alistair Begg refers to as a theological dog's breakfast. I'm not sure what he means by dog's breakfast, but it sounds like a a, a fitting uh, description. So what do we do then? We believe both because both are right. Chuck Smith, when he was asked you know, how he reconciles the free will of man with the sovereignty of God, he said, I don't. When the Bible teaches the sovereignty of God, I teach the sovereignty of God. When the Bible teaches the free will of man, I teach the free will of man. So how can both things be true at the same time? Didn't God ever hear about the law of non-contradiction? You know, where something can't be two things at once at the same time and in the same relationship? Well, I'm pretty sure that God invented this law. But, you know, there's plenty of other things that we can't explain either. You know, how can we explain how Jesus can be 100% God and 100% man at the same time? We can't. It's another one of those things that our mind just cannot comprehend. How can we comprehend the Trinity? How God can be only one, but still three persons. You know, and and people have tried to come up with analogies to explain these things. You know, like explaining the Trinity as, you know, like an egg. Or, you know, like water. You know, vapor, ice, and liquid really bad analogy the best uh, analogy for the the dilemma of free will versus divine election I read in a book by Norman Geisler a book called chosen but free and he said on the door the entrance to heaven there's a sign that says all ye who will enter in here but once you get inside you look on the back side of the door and there's a sign there that says you were chosen. Yeah. We are not going to reconcile these things. We just have to realize that God gave us free will 
but at the same time he is sovereign but in choosing us you know he made it possible that we could choose him and once we choose him he predestined that we would be adopted into his family as sons and daughters you know on this basis Romans uh, 8:17 says and if we're children then we're heirs heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together and my favorite you know Paul says in Galatians 4 4 to 7 but when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons and because you are sons God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts crying Abba father therefore you are no longer a slave but a son and if a son then an heir of God through Christ well it just keeps getting better and better doesn't it as he heaps these blessings on us they just keep getting better and better he made us accepted you know what a wonderful feeling it is to be accepted you know, we can be tolerated, you know, we can be ignored, or we can be just downright rejected. I don't know which is worse. But to be accepted by God, you know, that's like God saying, you know, he's okay. Yeah. She's okay. For God to say we're okay to accept us into his kingdom, into his family, and to give us all the rights and privileges as a son or a daughter. You know, it's just such an amazing thing. You know, and no wonder that Peter was awestruck, you know, when he was at the house of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, a Gentile. You know, God sent him there to to preach the gospel to them and to see that they were accepted he says you know I perceive that in truth God is God shows no partiality but in every nation uh, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him and all of this is possible through and only through Jesus Christ our Lord the beloved and again I have to say you know it's no wonder that Paul was carried away with praise we have these blessings and are secure in him and Jesus said lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also and you know he did this all of this and according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace he didn't do it because we were worth it he didn't do it because we were great people he didn't do it because we were righteous we were none of these things he did it because he loved us and it is through his grace and through his grace alone that he did these things for us. 
Paul goes on, well, will go on as we get to it, you know, to tell us in chapter 2, you know, that it is grace, by grace, that we are saved, and not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, you know, lest any of us should boast. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and for the wonderful things that you have done for us. And like the Apostle Paul who who penned these words that you gave him, let us rejoice in the things that you have done for us. Let us glorify you for the grace that you have given us and poured out upon us and bestowed upon us. Because you're worthy, O Lord. We know it's because you first loved us that we can love you. You loved us when we were unlovable. And yet, you made it possible that we could be joint heirs with our Lord Jesus Christ of the vastest and the most wonderful inheritance in all the universe. And that is your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.